As an immigrant to this land myself, I humbly acknowledge that for over 40,000 years, Aboriginal peoples have been looking after, caretaking, nurturing this land and its environment, and those of us who come and settle here. And I'm now going to invite Professor Margaret Gardner, our Vice-Chancellor and President of RMIT, to uh, come up to the platform, give the welcome address and the formal acknowledgement. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, I know that um, often uh, we have one of our elders from the Wurundjeri people um, giving the welcome to country. Uh, unfortunately, um, the other Margaret Gardner uh, is not here tonight, so I'm hoping she'll forgive me for standing in. Those of you who know the other Margaret Gardner... Um, I think we'll understand that she will probably be okay with me saying, uh, not as an Indigenous person, but that as a non-Indigenous person, we recognise the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, their elders past and present, and we pay our respects to their elders. Um, and with that, I'd like to say how pleased I am on behalf of RMIT to welcome people here to this um, wonderful celebration of social work at RMIT and I'd like to warmly welcome tonight's guest speaker, Paris Aristotle, Director of the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture and Chair of the Minister for Immigration and Citizenship's Council on Asylum Seekers and Detention. I'd also like to welcome all the social work alumni who are here, the staff, the students, the friends and partners of social work at RMIT. Um, it is a wonderful thing to be able to mark 40 years of such a wonderful program and there will be, and Charlotte Williams herself, a, a new discipline head and professor of social work at RMIT, will speak about um, what she has garnered from many others of the history uh, from its beginnings at the Preston Institute of Technology which later became the Philip Institute, at uh, which is which is where our, what is now called our Bandura campus is located. But I'd like to just say a couple of things about the importance of social work at RMIT and the way we like to feel that social work reflects what is distinctive about RMIT. Um, first of all, self-evidently, uh, it's been with RMIT for a considerable period of time, obviously some 40 years. The important thing about social work is it's one of those constellations of professional programs which RMIT holds dear to its heart. Now, why are professional programs so dear to RMIT's heart? Because they are actually about how you go out into the community and make a difference, and they are a form of education that actually insists that you are engaged with the practice of the field. This is not reflection on a field, this is not just understanding of the world, not that all those things aren't in and of themselves truly wonderful. This is about understanding and turning that understanding to action. And that's what a profession such as social work does and that's what we like to think is important in all our education at RMIT. 
And social work adds to that, of course, its long-standing commitment to other aspects, um, commitment to social justice, commitment to making a difference in the community at large, and I use the community at large to speak to not just the immediate community here, but a true internationalism in the way that we understand what can be done. Um, it wouldn't be a milestone event if the university didn't in some form celebrate how truly wonderful and uh, successful social work is and has been. So there are people in the room who have had a long-standing association with it and it's important at these times to stop for a moment and if you can't actually say, and I, as someone who isn't a social worker, it's easier for me to say to the people in social work and to the students how wonderfully they've done, you can see it in a number of indicators. There are huge numbers of students who come to RMIT to do social work. There are very strong results from the, from the students about the quality they find in terms of their feedback about the teaching that they get. The strength of the program, there are more than 500 students across the three programs in social work here at RMIT, which makes RMIT the largest single on-campus provider of social work education in Australia. Now, you could be large, but you might not be good. Um, but in fact, the demand from students and the quality of the students who come just rises year on year. Um, sometimes I think that students become cleverer and more brilliant year on year and maybe that's just declining grey cells, you know, brain cells in people as they get older, such as myself. But it's certainly true that the students who come to social work are truly talented and wonderful. Um, and there are so many who want to come and we can't take all of them in despite our size. The Master of Social Work degree applications exceeded available places by more than three to one. If we were running a US university where they'd use that as a marker of real success, that is a marker of real success. Um, the first preferences for other undergraduate programs are double the number of places that we have. So we may be large, but we could be much larger except that we can't fit any more in and we have to be concerned about the quality that we are able to deliver and I think at the size we are, we are probably about as big as we can manage. Um, the, the first, second and third preferences for the Bachelor of Social Work this year exceeded offers by more than four to one and the double degree by more than six to one. Um, that's just a way of saying that the people in social work are really proud that so many people want to come and do social work here and it's sort of sad that we can't take more but as you can see, at the size we are, we are probably about as big as is sensible to provide quality. And of course if you have that, that much demand in the way that these programs work, you can imagine that the entry scores to enter rise and rise because it's a function of demand and supply and so, indeed, the entry scores for social work at RMIT are matched only by the University of Sydney in Australia. And while I won't say that everything rests on the entry score of a student marked by their, what they got when they finished school, because it isn't everything, 
because people come into RMIT from different routes and they bring different types of experience. It's just another way of saying to you that this is a very successful program and that it brings together people who really want to be social workers, who are really prepared to be social workers, and we hope that the quality of the education they get makes sure that they are prepared to be truly excellent social workers. Um, I want to say something about the sorts of things we value then in how um, those students are prepared. We like to feel that they're prepared with a strong sense of social justice, that they understand that they're there to make a difference and that they have a capacity to take up positions in a whole range of different agencies and settings. And we know that the alumni of RMIT Social Work are represented in over 200 agencies across Melbourne and beyond, and that suggests that indeed they find their way into many different settings. And that's very important because those partnerships then help the next generation of students walk out and find places where they can learn in an experiential setting, in a real setting, what it takes to be a social worker. So we don't believe in RMIT that your education comes by thinking what it might be like, that you actually have to experience what it will be like so that you know that that is actually what you're committed to and that you have confidence when you leave that you can be independent and that you will be able to make the difference that you thought you had in your heart when you put your hand up to do the program. And so people in this room have been hosting over 150 of our students in training and in various placements, people working with staff on research, advocacy programs. You've contributed as partners to the curriculum, to the way we deliver. Those, those partners, you, many of you, our partners, our, our alumni, are contributing huge and invaluable ongoing support, both in terms of student placements, but in terms of how RMIT social work operates and how it stays at the forefront of practice. We like to think that it's con con absolutely connected with its community, as I said, and we know from the students that they constantly say that they value that notion that social work is here in the city and reflects the challenges of the city and that there are projects from the gendered nature of homelessness, suicide, migration, mobilities and movement in cities, all sorts of policy areas, anti-poverty, ageing and disability, all those things are projects that take people in different directions in the way they experience both the social work curriculum and go out into practice. Um, I want to say that it isn't just practice in this city that our programs also take students internationally and take students from international settings. There are increasing numbers of international students and student exchanges. There are links in the Philippines, Malaysia, India, Burma, parts of Europe and North America. Students and staff study overseas, host international scholars and undertake practice uh, in international settings. Indeed, one of the things that sometimes cause me palpitations, I look down at one of our social work staff down here, who shall remain nameless, and periodically I know that she marches off with groups of students into settings that I think are extremely challenging. But 
which she doesn't uh, resile from and which the students come back with wonderful experience and whole new ways of seeing the world because we're not just training and educating social workers for the circumstances of Australia, we are educating them for the world. So we hope that social work reflects all the things that RMIT values, that commitment to learning through experience, that commitment to being connected with the profession and the community in which you're operating, and that truly strong commitment to a, a global perspective, an understanding that the world is other than what you might have experienced initially and that you can't do your best unless you understand the full dimensions of that. And so we like to say that the university is global, urban and connected and that all our programs will um, deliver on that and I think social work does that in full. Before I conclude and hand over to the much better qualified Paris Aristotle to say um, what he is going to say to you in the lecture, I know that people asked me outside about this hall. I apologise to those of you who've heard me say this before, but some people asked, so what does this hall represent? And I wanted to say something about this because this says something about the sort of environment that nurtures programs like social work and, um, and is part of the commitment to making an impact and making a difference through education and research. So this building's very interesting. It's a 19th century building. It was the largest Hibernian hall in Melbourne, which, as those of you who understand will know, this was the hall for the Irish immigrants, and that's in part why you still see the green. So this was the place where people who were new to this land, the Irish, who did for all sorts of good reasons feel that they were oppressed, um, gathered and celebrated who they were. And it went on to have a very interesting place in the life of this city. You will see purple because this was the place where women uh, who were concerned with their representation and the vote met. So it had a strong history with feminists. The unemployed workers' movement had plenty of time in this space. And then it had a life of all sorts of different sorts of celebration from sporting events uh, through to... Ah, there are people here who are old enough to remember some of uh, the best rock con concerts that were held of the day that were held in this hall in the 80s. Um, so it's had a very colourful history. This was a hall that spoke for immigrants, that spoke for people who were trying to make a difference and then became part of a university. People had horrible experiences here in exams, I'm sure, but they also had great experiences here in rock concerts and that's how life is in universities. It's the, the exciting and the terrifying altogether. And this hall was remodelled by a group of RMIT uh, architects who tried to speak to the university in technology and the fractals and the history in the green and the purple and the white. And so this is not a bad place to bring a group of social workers together. 
a group of people who themselves have always been concerned with making a difference and being connected to the community, it's not a bad place to have a celebration like that. So I hope that you can truly celebrate not just what you garnered uh, from your time in education here or from what you have given to education here in social work and what you continue to give. I hope that you get a bit of time to reflect on how important it is that people give their all and they continue to give their all caring about making a difference for others. And that's, I guess, what brings you all together and what we value in you as alumni. So thank you. It's my privilege as chair to have a few moments to speak to you about um, 40 years of social work education at RMIT. Um, and we do this on World Social Work Day. And all over the world, uh, social workers are celebrating under the global theme, the global agenda theme of promoting social and economic equalities. And social work has a critical role in promoting social and economic equalities. And this is an annual opportunity to advocate what that social work perspective is within political systems and to celebrate uh, the contributions that social work make to societies. Yet we must be unique as a profession in looking forward to our own demise, to a society where our services might just not be necessary. That's our utopia. This day provides an opportunity to come together, to mix and to mingle, and to celebrate our 40 years, but also recognise the 10,000 students studying in social work across Australia, the 420 or so academics and allied staff working with them, and you 21,000 practitioners and the army of allied human service workers who are uh, working in social work and its allied professions, but also those of you who are in policy circuits and don't always put your hand up and say, I am social work trained. So let's celebrate that great community. In making reference to that amalgam of people, it begs that old age old question, what is social work? What should it be? What type of social work graduate do we need for a 21st century? And the answer to that question is by no means a settled matter. Debate in social work education is riven with competing philosophical and ideological notions and interpretations of the task that is social work. What should be its focus for intervention? And it's full of remonstrations about the nature and quality of the impacts. Can social work make a difference? Does it make a difference? And how are we to measure this? As I heard a colleague recently say to me, social work, a good idea, but has it worked in practice? 
In an increasingly regulated environment, we're experiencing tensions and tussles over the curriculum, over the nature and content of social work, both from within the higher education environment and from within the professional body itself. And as we experience these incursions into our autonomy as social work educators, so I would argue this is the time when we need to assert even more forcefully our values and our political commitments, our philosophical orientation. So, what is the legacy statement of RMIT social work? It comes with a particular style and a very particular set of political commitments. From its origins in the Pitt Institute and the, the commitment to social justice, to egalitarianism, to an alternative way, has had a number of particular inflections under different leadership. And you'll see in your leaflet that we have uh, identified 40 years of leadership in uh, social work um, at RMIT. But how can we justify this claim to social justice? Because there can be few social work programs today that wouldn't subscribe to those very principles. Well, there's a story. There's a story that goes with that claim. And as everyone likes a story, I'm going to tell a little bit about that story. It's a story rich in specific milestones peopled with some very significant characters and redolent with memories, individual memories and collective memories, your memories. And how could I possibly do justice to that 40 years of excellence in social work education or the many names associated with it? History is about people. It's about people and their commitments, what they choose to do and what they choose not to do. And the temptation is, of course, to offer an account based on leadership and stewardship, founding mothers, embryos, births, childhood, and transitions to the fully mature social work at RMIT that it is today. That would be quite social work. But the story is obviously much more complicated than that. It's about the contributions of staff, about the contributions of students, decision makers about changes within the, within the profession itself and changes in the higher education environment. As you've heard, social work education at RMIT has its origins not in the city at all, but at the Preston Institute of Technology in 1973, which later became the Philip Institute of Technology in 1983, located on the Bundura campus. In several respects, the type of education that was instituted was groundbreaking. This was to be an alternative approach, a clear departure from the dominant conventional model of social work training and capable of producing a new type of social worker. It represented a determined shift away from the default social casework approach. And this became manifest in the architecture that was instituted and the values and processes that underpinned the structures. First and foremost, it identified itself as a school of social work, 
not a department within another school or a faculty. It was the first school in Australia to offer a four-year integrated undergraduate programme, the first to promote a generic intervention model, the first to launch its own international journal on social work education, and a monograph series known as the Pitt Press Occasional Papers. And it instituted an annual national summer conference which was still running well into the 80s and attracted a huge number of participants. But perhaps most distinctly, the Pitt Social Work Programme offered innovative placements outside of traditional social welfare settings. In so many respects, this programme reflected the radical politics of social work in the 1970s, which emphasised the structural determinants of people's misery and distress. Remember Bailey and Brake, um, Corrigan and Leonard's book, it valorised the client as an active agent in their own change effort and offered a critical departure from the casework approach. It looked to the collective, the community, the locality and the union as systems in the change effort and to a questioning of the social order. Clients now had rights. This was a rejection of the competitive individualism and individual pathology of existing models. The programme delivery was based on a non-hierarchical way of engaging with students. Students' work was not graded. And there were close and egalitarian relationships between staff and students. I am told we had our own labs and we did it all on beanbags. <laughs> I love it. Very history man. Uh, by the 1980s, the curriculum reflected a shift to a broader conceptualization of the social justice ambition. It acknowledged the specific ways in which structural disadvantaged impacts on women particularly, and others in the lines of difference and divisions that we, dis we construct. It looked to question the denial of citizenship rights to specific sectors of the population. If the pioneering programme of the 70s was the alternative era, the 80s were renowned for their politically progressive stance and the progressive curriculum reflected feminist principles. Now, it's not that these influences weren't everywhere present in Western social work, but here the ideas had a literal interpretation in social work educational practices, and the students wanted it. The structuralist approach appealed to the student group, and they identified it as the distinctive style of education and training. Without their subscription, this trend would not have continued. In 1992, RMIT University was created through a merger of the Pitt and Royal Melbourne Institutes, and social work education later moved to the city in 1997. The monolith that is RMIT, and I did say monolith, not monster, 
enabled the programme to more securely reflect its social science bedrock and its applied nature. That social work at RMIT is housed within the broader social sciences is significant, and it is informed by those broader social sciences. As with all reconfigurations, great things happen, and the co-location with the city planners was one such thread, a thread that might have developed, but perhaps remained dormant as other themes emerged more strongly. So listen out for that one later. By the 2000s, attempts to theorise the interconnection between personal distress and public issues was emerging under the conceptual framework of critical social work. The individual and the structural analysis were presented not as antithetical, but as complementary. A critical consciousness was needed to complement the materialist theory of social work. The RMIT Staff Corridor produced a book by this title, now in its second edition. A text that not only revised the curriculum at RMIT, but significantly influenced the social work curriculum per se. An approach that is now de rigueur has its home here. The strong social justice orientation was soon to appear in AASW statements and RMIT can claim a contribution to that. Latterly in the 2000s, concerns with the social work effectiveness brought a shift toward influencing policy and a social justice interpretation that emphasised the profession's ability to advocate for change within political systems, within new governance structures. And this demanded a new politics for social work. It needed, and I quote, a strategy of heroic agency. Thus, over the decades, the social justice mission has evolved with various emphases reflecting wider concerns, developments in academic uh, theorising, and in no small measure has been a reflection of its leaders. There is no room for complacency. A caveat must be that social justice is a notion easy to state, but not so easy to do. Social work is perfectly capable of espousing an inclusive rhetoric whilst taking a selective approach to the socio-economic problems, focusing on some sources of distress whilst ignoring others, smoothing the waters rather than ruffling them, pacifying rather than being outraged, and promoting service delivery that's rooted in individualism and the preservation of professional status rather than service delivery based on mutuality and collectivism. So what will our interpretation of the concerns of social justice be in the 21st century? What does it mean for social work RMIT style? Well, we have a strong philosophical basis. The commitment of the staff, their approach to their research, to practice, to field education is underpinned by that very social justice orientation. 
the architecture of the programme reflects our connectedness to the communities we serve. We are not therefore seeking a philosophical turn, but to enhance our theoretical orientation and reinforce these commitments in everything we do. Nevertheless, it's pertinent to ask what just might be radical at this moment. What elements of social justice's transformative mandate are suggested to us now? Well, I would argue that we will need to, to engage and challenge the dominant ideas about professionalism itself if we are to stay true to our mission by asking, are there elements that draw us away from alliances we seek in social change? Are there elements that seek out exclusivity where those tendencies will be counterproductive to those we serve? Is there a narrowing, a conservatising tendency in formulations of the social work role that we should resist? We must struggle to maintain our critical distance as educators and knowledge producers so that we can be vigilant about the type of professionalism we subscribe to. We will need to be careful not to retreat into the default given model of professionalism, but to engage confidently in a process of re-professionalism based on co-production and mutuality. If we are the grassroots-led programme, then our transformative potential lies in the ways in which we can open up the profession engage with diverse bodies of knowledge and change the portrait of social work. And then there are a couple of themes that have existed in the 40-year history but have perhaps laid a little more underdeveloped whilst we focused on other things. I believe it's pressing now that we turn our attention back to internationalism Internationalism is inevitable, it's necessary, and it's very, very nice. How we rise to the challenge of increased internationalism in social work is the question. How equipped are we to respond to the challenge of migration and movements? And how are we to formulate this within the context of a bicultural national context? How will we accommodate multiculturalism within a bicultural con uh, context. We need a serious and considered engagement with the super diversity that international, internationalism brings. And we need to step away from a culturalist paradigm towards a rights-based paradigm. And finally, my view is that we need to recognize and focus on something that we're good at. Focus where there is an opportunity for innovation and where RMIT provides us with the greatest opportunity to make a difference and mark out our distinctiveness. For me, the neglected element in our legacy is the city itself. The city that featured in the origins of social work, that the Fabian socialists enumerated, the city that designed a pragmatic response to distress that triggered 
innovative interventions like the settlement projects that the Chicago School taught us to map ethnographically? How are we to theorise the relationship between people, place and well-being today? What new issues for social work do these social geographies produce? How can we harness the opportunities of the city for productive change, its civil life, its organisations and its movements? And how well are we preparing the social worker fit for those 21st century concerns? Come back for our 50th and I'll tell you what we found. Thank you very much. We've got a very special duty to perform before I introduce our keynote speaker. Um, we as a staff group have worked very hard together for this event and we've been very, very excited uh, about this event. And we just want to take a few moments to recognise uh, our most long-standing staff member, Dr. June Allen. And I just want to ask... The beanbags. Uh, June has been uh, with Social Work Education, Pitt, RMIT style, since 1976, has made an immense contribution to that, has four times won RMIT's teaching award and once won a research award. So she has made an excellent contribution. Many of you will know her teaching now or in the past. And she gave me a lot of the elements of the story I have told you. So well done, you. Okie doke, the highlight of the evening now. Um, I'd like to just introduce our keynote speaker, Paris Aristotle, who's going to uh, speak to us about the good, bad and the ugly, which is a great and controversial topic. Uh, many of you will associate uh, Paris's name with Foundation House, the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture. He has extensive experience in the area of refugee settlement and the provision of services to survivors of torture and trauma. He's held positions on a number of federal, state and international organisations and made presentations to the UNHCR. In 2002, Paris was made a member of the Order of Australia and in 2003 was awarded an Australian Centenary Medal. Currently, Paris is chair of the Minister for Immigration and Citizenship's Council on Asylum Seekers and Detention. He's a member of the federal government's Refugee Resettlement Advisory Council, uh, the Resident Determination Reference Group, and the Onshore Protection Consultative Group. Last year, he was appointed to the Prime Minister's Expert Panel on Asylum Seekers to advise and provide recommendations to the government on policy options to deter asylum seekers from risking their lives on the dangerous boats' journeys across to Australia. The panel's report was handed down on the 13th of August 
2012. Welcome, Paris. Can I invite you to the stage? Um, thanks very much, Charlotte, for that introduction and for the invitation to be here with you today. Um, uh, I was uh, quite keen to be able to talk to people uh, from RMIT Social Work course about these issues. Um, as Charlotte indicated, they're relatively controversial ones, not that I've had much experience with that of late. Um, but... Uh, I think they're important ones to discuss. They relate to the sort of work that you undertake here. They relate to the sort of practices and beliefs that courses like the social work course hold dear to their hearts. And they deal with a level of complexity uh, within the human rights field that uh, is difficult to match or find an area that is more complicated. There are other areas that are equally as complex, but this has to be one of the most complex I've ever come across. So thanks for the invitation uh, to talk to you on this occasion. Um, Foundation House has had and continues to have a strong relationship with RMIT, and in particular the School of Social Work. There's a number of social work students who've undertaken placement with us. They've been terrific contributors, eager to learn and be involved in the life of the agency, keen to be given important responsibilities which they've always discharged with distinction. We're keen and we look forward to hosting more of, more of them again in the future. Some of our staff have undertaken postgraduate studies at RMIT and several of our staff members, including myself, not as a social worker, but including myself, are RMIT graduates. I was actually from the old Philip part. Um, and I have to say, before I go on any more, over the last, and I was thinking about this driving in and it got me very worried, um, I was trying to work out how many years it's been that I've been in jobs where I've employed social workers and I think it worked out to be about the last 32, which made me wonder about when I was going to retire. Um, but I, so I've had a fair bit of experience over the years in working with social workers. And uh, I have to say that we, I just want to be a bit self-indulgent here, we're, we're extremely lucky at the Foundation to have some of the best I've ever seen or worked with. I've looked at organisations all over the world, certainly all over Australia, and uh, I think it would be remiss of me to be up here today given the proportion of our staff that also have come from RMIT, not to at least acknowledge the complexity of the work that they do. There are no easy cases when you pick up a case at the Foundation. Everything is at the far end of the trauma spectrum and they carry out those functions extraordinarily well and with incredible dedication. So for someone like myself, I feel quite privileged to be able to work alongside them. One of our managers here, Lou Hess, is a former staff member of... Uh, of RMIT, and uh, he's noted that the two organisations are a good fit, which is why we're so keen on the, stu on the student placement role. RMIT's approach to social work is consistent with the approach of Foundation House. Your vision, as stated on the RMIT website, is to contribute to a just and sustainable world. Our vision, as stated in our strategic plan, 
is an inclusive society committed to human rights and justice. You don't meekly accept the world as it is, and neither do we. The Social Work Department here is located in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies. The term global does not appear in our title, but we're constantly reminded of the events in our region and beyond that are ever present, that are an ever present reality. The lives of our clients are profoundly affected not only by their experiences in other countries prior to their arrival in Australia, but also by what is occurring today and is likely to occur in the future. An example, this January, twin bomb blasts in Quetta, Pakistan killed over 100 Hazara people and injured nearly 300 more. The main Afghan ethnic group, they are the main Afghan ethnic group here in Australia. A week later, one of our managers reported that six of her staff had clients who had family members killed in Quetta in those two explosions. In my talk tonight, I propose to examine some of the main challenges governments, and in particular the Australian government, um, faces in, in regards to the current and potential issues of forced migration movements. The forced migration movements, I'm going to primarily focus on those involving refugees, i.e. people fleeing persecution for reasons defined in the Refugee Convention as being for race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or a political opinion. There are many people who are compelled to move by other immediate or imminent circumstances, such as environmental um, issues, but there's not enough time for me tonight to concentrate on those issues as well. I want to acknowledge before I start the lecture that this is a very vexed and controversial issue and that it generates, understandably, and it should, strong emotional responses. I hope to deal with this in a way that respects the reality of that and also to provide, with, provide you with some insights that may help deepen our, own, our thinking together about these issues. It's a very delicate issue and, the, and sometimes they feel very controversial, so I just ask you to hang in with it until we get through to the end. About the title of the lecture, for those who, do, who may not know, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly is the title of a film in the 1960s about three outlaws in mid-19th century USA seeking a treasure of gold. Each of the characters was identified as one of the elements um, in the title. One was good, one was bad, one was ugly. Sometimes the tenor of discussion about issues relating to refugees and asylum seekers is along those lines. It can generate a destructive level of antagonism and distort the truth. Inflammatory language is used to misrepresent the motivations and lived experiences of refugees and asylum seekers. In this environment, the politics allows fallacious terms for describing asylum seekers to take hold in modern lexicon, such as illegals, queue-jumpers and even terrorists. It casts them all, even those found to be in need of protection, in a sinister and criminal light. It does this in spite of the fact that most have fled regimes acknowledged to have been human rights abominations. Of great concern to me has been a reluctance to analyse information properly and to allow new information and trends to be considered with the depth and honesty that is required to adapt to policy accordingly without compromising our humanitarian and international obligations. As I suggest tonight, 
I think such approaches are unhelpful at best. They get in the way of robust analysis and the dialogue and cooperative action we need between key governmental and non-governmental stakeholders. It's relevant to this evening's event because so much of what occurs through good social work practice is cooperative action, built on a deeper understanding of a person's experience and how that affects them. Done well, with honesty and with integrity, social work offers insights that can help fuse policy and commentary with the human face of the issues at hand. However, apart from the good, the bad and the ugly, there's a fourth character who would be of much more value. This one would be called wicked. The term wicked problem was attributed to a couple of American urban planners in the 1970. Wicked refers not to the moral qualities, but to the complexity and difficulty of the challenge. The Australian Public Service Commission published a very good paper on the subject a couple of years ago to sharpen the understanding of public servants who have to deal with issues such as climate change and Indigenous disadvantage. Some of the characteristics of a wicked problem are they're highly resistant to resolution. There's often a disagreement about the causes of the problems and the best way to tackle them. Attempts to address wicked problems often lead to unforeseen consequences. Wicked problems usually have no clear solution, may never be completely solved, and the challenge is to find the best way to manage them. And wicked problems are socially complex. They involve coordinated action by a range of governmental and civil society actors. So wicked problem is an extremely apt concept for governments and others seeking to respond to the varied challenges of forced migration. This is particularly so considering that we control very little of the causal factors. Our ability to influence movements is marginal and dependent on the support of other nations. Our commitment in this area should extend beyond our immediate gaze and into the socially complex environment of mass movements and persecution. How do we be as fair as we can be given the widespread hardship and desperation around the globe? I'm going to firstly talk about the key issues from a global perspective and try to give you some information about that and then look at the challenges from the Australian viewpoint. At a global level, if we want to talk about scale, the UNHCR estimates that there are 42.5 million people forcibly displaced around the world. Of these, around 15.2 million are refugees, which are people outside of their country of origin and in need of protection. Of them, more, more than 800,000 refugees from this group have been identified by UNHCR in 2011 as being in need of resettlement, for which there were 80,000 places available. In the early 1990s, the average time frame for a protracted refugee situation was nine years. They actually define a protracted situation as being for five years, but the average time frame in the early 1990s was nine years. At the moment, that has stretched to 20 years as an average time frame. So people are living much longer, for generations in fact, in refugee camps. According to the UNHCR, there are 900,000 asylum seekers in industrialised countries. In 2011, 441,000 new applications for asylum were lodged 
which is the highest number since 2003. Afghans represent one in every four refugees in the world, with 95% of them living in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran. Of the 1.6 million Iraqi refugees around the world, a million of them live in Syria, 500,000 in Jordan and 50,000 in Iran. In South Africa and Kenya, they host hundreds of thousands of refugees, with the Dadaab refugee camp on its own housing more than 559,000 refugees. And what of the volatility? Well, there is constant change around the world. The UNHCR reports in the current conflict, the, Syrian, the current Syrian conflict has generated over a million refugees. Imagine the double jeopardy confronting the one million Iraqis that had fled there in the first instance after the war in their own country. In Pakistan at present, there is a relentless campaign of targeted killings and bombings against Shia Muslims, in particular Hazaras. The Pakistani government has declared that at the end of June, the permission to remain for registered Afghans will end. In 2014, Allied troops will depart, will depart Afghanistan and there is a widely held view that the ability of the government of Afghanistan to maintain stability will be seriously compromised. In Burma, an assault against the Rohingya is creating considerable uncertainty and the options for, for them as refugees are extremely limited. But this is just a glimpse of the myriad of challenges present in this field of work and provides a tiny insight, actually, into why this global humanitarian issue fits the definition of a truly wicked problem. Let me draw um, for a moment on the issue on that question of resettlement. Australia is one of the main resettlement countries in the world. We were, we were the third highest resettlement country up until this year. A year ago, our humanitarian program totaled 13,750 people, of which 6,000 places were held for refugees. This, this program was, being, was at risk of being completely overwhelmed by the number of visa grants to asylum seekers who had arrived in Australia by boat or as asylum seekers, um, or who had arrived through other means, such as on a visitor's visa or a student visa, etc. Australia uniquely has a numerical link between the so-called offshore, people being resettled from camps, and onshore programs, which are people who've, who've come here to apply for, for resettlement. Which, and it's been steadfastly supported by both, both major parties since the 90s, and they don't look like cha changing from it at the moment. This policy has been strongly opposed by people in the sector for many years, including myself. The implications of this bipartisan position, in combination with the escalating numbers of boat arrivals, were becoming ominous in terms of the impact on our flexibility and responsiveness in terms of our humanitarian program to different refugee populations around the world. In particular, the consequent reduction in places available for family reunion within the humanitarian program was having a devastating impact on many refugees settled from parts of the world, such as Africa. They were unlikely to ever be reunited with family through the humanitarian program as the number of applicants in the waiting list had grown to over 20,000 and would continue to do so at unprecedented rates. When this was coupled with the continuing flow of asylum seekers who, of course, 
would also and should naturally want to be reunited with family. The timeframes for family reunion out of the special humanitarian component of our program had stretched to over 20 years. This meant that whether you had arrived by boat from Indonesia or from camps in Africa, Syria or Thailand, the likelihood of you ever being reunited with your family had just disappeared. The conflict, the conflict over the linking of the two elements of the humanitarian program reflects a division in attitudes about two distinct groups. And in many respects, it's a false division. In other respects, it's a very real one. Those who are resettled from abroad, from camps, as I said earlier, and those who arrive in Australia and claim asylum. There's in fact two groups of those who claim asylum. The ones who arrive, as I said, with a visa, a visitor's visa, a student visa. Some come on sporting events and so forth. My favourite was um, the big international meeting of young Catholics a few years ago um, when the minister at the time, a devout Catholic, who was also incredibly tough on asylum seekers, gave permission, blanket permission for people to arrive and then a whole lot applied for asylum after that, um, which I thought was uh, terrific given the biased position he'd taken, particularly against Muslims previously. Um, but, but I'm not going to talk about that group tonight. The second group is, is those who come without visas, and most often by boat, irregularly in government lang governmental language, illegally by some, even though it's not illegal. As stated, in, in 2011, UNHCR estimated that there were 441,000 asylum applications um, in 44 industrialised countries. It was a 20% increase on the 2010 figures and the highest, as I said, since 2003, when the numbers were at 505,000. To give you an example of those numbers, in Canada it was 25,350. In the UK it was 25,420. In France, 51,900. In Sweden, 25,500. In Greece, 9,310. You'd pick the wrong country if you're going to Greece at the moment. Um, and the US, there were 74,000. In the 2012 calendar year, Australia registered over 17,000 17, asylum seekers, with over 12,000 arriving in the six months between May and the end of October. However, this masked the reality that several thousand more would also have arrived had it not been had they not been prevented from departing by the Indonesian and Australian Federal Police. My point here is not to suggest that this is necessarily a good or benign thing, because in the absence of a better regional system, such individuals are either left languishing or compelled to take the risks all over again. I just make the point because they're never mentioned when we're talking about the total number of figures or the true number of, pe of people whose lives are at risk. The rate of arrival has generated a variety of concerns. It's been debated in the media, in the parliament, the community at large. Some have merit, some are exaggerated, and some are just plain wrong. The concerns range from fears of a threat to Australian security, border protection, the potential to be swamped by excessive numbers, that it is out of control and not being managed, and that others who are more deserving 
or who have been waiting in camps for many years are missing out as a consequence. Much of this is untrue, is either untrue, a distortion of the facts, or simply a blunt political tool for garnering populist support. This is not only the case in Australia, though. It's also the case in other Western democracies. In Denmark, the Netherlands and in France, in the UK, the manipulation of these issues is potent in how it affects domestic psyche and formative in determining to who people will commit their votes. It's a, it is a crass... Sorry, it is crass and defiles our, model, our moral obligations towards others, but it is nevertheless one of the most effective forms of wedge politics that I've ever seen. And as a consequence of that, it's going to be extraordinary, di extraordinarily difficult to change it. However, there is one aspect of this issue that is distressing and irrefutable, and that is the rate of deaths at sea. As the rate of boat arrivals has increased, so too has the loss of life. In just over a decade prior to June last year, 960 people died at sea, that we know of, trying to reach Australia, most having occurred in the past two years. In the last 18 months, more than 200 of them have been Hazara. As I visited detention centres, I was frequently asked for assistance to find family members who had been missing for more than six or eight months. No, no, nothing had been heard of them, given how frequent their communication is across Facebook and, the, and email, there is usually only one reason for that. Staff from my organisation have clients who lost six, mem six members of their family, another five members of their family as a consequence of boats sinking and others. All they, all they have left are photographs of coffins containing the bodies of loved ones in Indonesia. Some communities, such as the Afghan, regularly hold memorials for family members that, that, that have gone missing after a known departure. The reality is that the number of deaths at sea that we... Sorry, the reality is that we don't know what the true number of deaths at sea are, but we do know it's much higher than what's ever been reported. This reality was the rationale used by the Prime Minister for the establishment of the Expert Panel on Asylum Seekers, of which I was a member in 2012. The terms of reference for the panel were, the panel will provide advice and recommendations to the government on policy options available and the efficacy of such options to prevent asylum seekers risking their lives on dangerous boat journeys to Australia. I was, aware, of course, aware of the considerable scepticism about the government's motives for establishing the panel. The impasse within the parliament was entrenched in shallow rhetoric, political opportunism and a deep, deep lack of trust. In spite of my scepticism, though, I accepted the invitation without hesitation. In my view, the increasing rate of deaths at sea had reached a point and was on a trajectory that I personally could no longer accept. I could not accept it when I knew we had the ability to do more and better. I held a firm belief that even if we could not provide an actual solution to a wicked problem, we could still find a way to significantly improve the protection available to refugees within our region and prevent or at least dramatically reduce any further loss of life at sea. And I continue to hold that view today. 
I hadn't met Angus Houston and Michael Lestrange before this panel and I wondered what it was going to be like with them. But it didn't take long to realise the genuineness of their approach and their commitment to wanting to help resolve a very difficult problem. We were given six weeks, not six years, we were given six weeks and in the course of that period received input from hundreds of people from diverse backgrounds in writing and in person. One written submission, which was my favourite and in some ways sustained me throughout, was three words. It simply said, experts my ass." Perhaps the author had in mind the cartoon of Scott Adams, the creator of the Dilbert character, who asks, how can you tell someone is an expert? And the answer is that their, their business card says expert on it. I wanted to have T-shirts made up for the press, the press conference, experts on the front and my ass on the back for when we walked out, but Angus and Michael were just too straight for that. Um, a more generous interpretation of the author's intent, and I suspect this is a more generous interpretation, is that we were tasked with a subject of extraordinary complexity and we should be suitably modest about what, we could, what could be accomplished. There was no risk of us underestimating the magnitude or difficulty of the job. The amount of information we had to absorb was formidable. There are times when I think it would have been easier not to join the panel or at least not to take on board some of the information that confronted many of the strategic positions I'd previously held. I've never, real, I've never resiled from my view that as a country we should protect many more refugees and invest more in improving the protection space in our region. In that sense, it was also never a question of my moral position being challenged or changing. However, being confronted by new information that I could not ethically ignore compelled me to rethink my strategic position in how to meet that moral obligation. You can probably imagine that it was a pretty uncomfortable place for someone like myself to be at times. So what does that mean in the context of developing strategic policy response for dealing with this issue? Um, I'd like to frame this next bit, but not structure it, um, in terms of three criteria for assessing policy that were suggested by Michelle Grattan. They were humanity, effectiveness and community acceptability. They're all intersecting concepts, so I'm not going to try to split them out. The panel adopted a position that was reflected in the foreword of the report. I'd encourage any of you who are interested in this to read it. It's got an extraordinary amount of detail. In fact, I was trying to research statistics for this tonight and I asked someone to find if they could find the statistics for me and they told me about this report that was produced last year, um, which I quickly went back to. Um, uh, but it is worth a read, and uh, I have to say most people that have commented on it, either in the sector, in academia, in different political parties, I suspect never read the report. What it said was, in the foreword, there are no quick or simple solutions to the policy dilemmas and humanitarian challenges that asylum-seeking create. In addressing these dilemmas and meeting those challenges, we believe that Australian policy can and should be hard-headed, but not hard-hearted. That practicality and fairness should take precedence over theory and inertia, and that the perfect should not be allowed to become the enemy of the good. 
Those strategies need to shift the balance of Australian policies and regional arrangements to give greater hope and confidence to asylum seekers that regional arrangements will work for them. Sorry, will work more effectively and to discourage more actively the use of irregular maritime voyages. Rather than denying asylum seekers the right to take terrible risks, there is a responsibility to create opportunities that would enable their claims to be processed more fairly and effectively in ways that make those risks unnecessary. The first issue we needed to satisfy ourselves about was the ethical position we should adopt in the context of such a difficult position, picking up Grattan's criteria, the, humani the humanity. The, ethic the ethical issues for addressing these things are enormously complex. For us, it came down to two essential ones. The first was, should you intervene in, in preventing people from risking their lives or not? The case against intervening has sound ethical arguments to support its position, such as the right of people who fear persecution or death to do or risk whatever they have to to find safety. It's a position I've argued myself on many occasions in the past. People who've argued that reason that refugees die all over the world, and as one prominent advocate suggested to me, so why is this different to any other situation? That point is actually accurate and valid, but the question we had to answer was, was it right? I have to say that utilising that argument for myself as a reason for not intervening when we have the ability to do so eludes me. It's actually indisputable that the people that have died have died leaving Indonesia on their way to Australia, not to the US, not to New Zealand or not to Canada. And so they operate within our sphere of influence and they're dying within that sphere of influence. The other side of the ethical conundrum is the case that we should intervene to prevent people from risking their lives, and in this case dying at sea. That if we could do more to prevent people dying within our sphere of influence, then we should. Importantly for me was the reality that, a con that considerable numbers of women, children and babies who often have very little choice in the decision but who have significantly higher chances of dying when a boat sinks weighed heavily on my thoughts. The panel came down on the side that it was more ethical to do something. So we discussed that, decision, that choice and we came down on the side that it was more ethical for us to do something and that we should do something because we had the capacity to. In taking that position, we felt that it was fundamental to introduce measures that would build safer, more supportive and more timely protection outcomes for the largest number of people possible. This was indeed the panel's primary thrust and it was reflected in the structure and order and detail of the report. However, the most confronting aspect and controversial of this choice was the consequences of introducing measures not designed to punish people but to discourage such choices. We knew that those affected by the measures would be distressed if they did not receive the outcome they had paid for in the manner and the time frame they were led to believe it would happen within. We also know that purely punitive measures of the, the purely punitive measures of the past caused great harm and that we had to build in safeguards that would avoid this. It's important to, re to, say, to say this to you because 
When we made that ethical choice with the risks associated, we decided that we had to own all of those risks, which is why we introduced safeguards and made recommendations for how it would be in. So we didn't shy away from it. We owned the fact there were serious mental health concerns, there were problems that, that could be generated if it wasn't done properly, we needed to be vigilant and so forth. The problem that I've had is that people who adopt the other ethical position, which I think is a valid position for people to adopt, tend not to own all of that position. They tend not to own the part that in the current context that position means more people are likely to die. Now, I haven't heard anyone who adopts that position and I don't believe any single one of them ever want anyone to die. But that is part of owning that position and we have to be honest about whatever position we take. If not, what's the good of us in terms of policy? In order to create a template that could ultimately be effective, we produced 22 recommendations. That was both its strength and, in my view, also its weakness. The complexity of the issues dictated that such a range of recommendations would be necessary. However, to be successful, the independent nature of them had to be honoured and stuck to as it was implemented. The major emphasis of the report was the development of the regional protection framework. The primary goal, as stated in the forward, was to create a fairer, better, faster, safer system. Critical to achieving this in the recommendations was increasing the humanitarian program to 20,000 places, the largest it's been in 30 years, and then to 27,000 places over the next five years. Adding a further 4,000 places to the family reunion stream of our general migration program so that we could deal with the backlog in family reunion cases. Providing an additional $70 million a year to enable UNHCR to process people, register them and process their applications more quickly and for civil society groups and NGOs to provide the care and assistance that asylum seekers need in order to stop them from having to keep moving and risking their lives. To give you some examples of this, out of those, those initiatives on their own, there, this year, between now and the end of June, there are still 5,500 to 6,000 visas available for Afghan refugees alone and their family members. That's more than double, in some years more than triple, the number of Afghan boat arrivals. In Indonesia, there are 270 children locked in detention. They're unattached minors and the Indonesian government won't release them because they're minors and there's nowhere to release them to, so they keep them in detention. Some of these programs and these monies will result in them being released from detention, cared for in the community by NGOs such as Church World Services and the Red Cross and processed for resettlement to Australia. There are enormous benefits in focusing on a regional arrangement that aren't immediate to us. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in UNHCR says that with the additional resources in Indonesia, their processing times will drop from 18 to 24 months to 6 to 9 months, an enormous shift in that balance. But if I can, um, the, the really wicked nature of the problem plays out in the questions around the disincentive. We made recommendations to reintroduce the use of Nauru and Manus Island for the processing of claims, to part, to incorporate them into trying to build a regional arrangement. While we focused on trying to improve the conditions in Malaysia and Indonesia, 
and get the acceptance of those governments to allow processing to take place in a regional context as well. They were difficult issues. To underpin it, though, we had to come up with some principles. And I want to take a minute to explain this because it's been so misrepresented, poorly explained and misused by government, political parties, be they the government, the opposition or the Greens, and a series of commentators. And that's the question of the no-advantage principle. The no advantage principle, as an underpinning component of a regional processing and protection framework, was con conceived as a basis to create greater fairness in the processing of a person's refugee application and for the provision of resettlement to those to be found in need of protection. It's not a test. I want to throw something at the TV every time I hear someone call it a test. It's not a test at all. Um, it's a guiding principle that, do, that aims to improve the fairness for asylum seekers regardless of their capacity to engage a people smuggler or not. So that if there is a mother with her child in Indonesia or Malaysia who is, who is in need of protection and resettlement but the places are continuously not available to someone like that because someone has been able to move around the system, how do we build a principle that helps ensure that we treat everybody fairly and don't leave people left behind just because they don't have the capacity. The principle can't be used to, uh, as a form of punishment or for the purpose of deterring asylum seekers seeking protection. However, in understanding the risks associated with these measures and the principle, we made, rec we made a series of recommendations and safeguards. They included that wherever people were transferred to, Treatment had to be consistent with human rights standards, including no arbitrary detention. There had to be appropriate accommodation, appropriate physical and mental health services, access to educational and vocational training programs. There needed to be legal assistance um, for the preparation of claims and a, and a credible appeal mechanism. The monitoring and, and of care and protection arrangements needed to be undertaken by a representative group that included non-government organisations. There needed to be the provision of, of case management assistance to individuals um, by credible non-government organisations. And there needed to be the provision for people to be transferred back to the Australian mainland or wherever they needed to be transferred for whatever reason, whether it was a health reason, whether it was an issue uh, of operational necessity or whatever. I need to say to you here that these safeguards have not been in place in Nauru or Manus, which makes what's happened in Nauru and Manus to date inconsistent with the panel's recommendations. In Nauru, they're working towards it. Processing began today of claims. Construction of appropriate accommodation is, is uh, two-thirds of the way complete. There is an oversight group in place there now. Uh, the Salvation Army is operational there. Things are beginning to progress in a much more positive direction. But it didn't start out that way. And the government shouldn't have jumped before it was ready. It's a perennial problem with this government, though. Manus Island's another story altogether. Papua, the Papua New Guinean government, in fact, is resisting some of these safeguards from being put in place. The monitoring and oversight safeguards 
um, people are detained, including children and so forth, and therefore it's not consistent with the panel's recommendations. The panel's recommendations are government policy now. And it's been problematic for me that people haven't used the report and what the panel said to challenge the government about what they're actually doing. Um, but at present, it's hard pre you'd be hard-pressed to argue that what's happened in, in Nauru and Manus to date is consistent with what we said needed to occur. The other thing that I have to say is that Importantly about the no advantage principle is that it doesn't require an asylum seeker to be subjected to extended periods of stay in a regional processing centre, beyond that which would apply to others in similar situations. So if you move someone back into a regional processing arrangement in order to create a greater degree of fairness, you don't then need to do anything additional to them. You don't need to say, oh, well, but you're going to have to stay here for five years. Um, or you're not going to get access to the same level of assistance or support. None of that is necessary. The principle is about putting people back into a system and then treating everybody in that system equally. So that if a mother and family was processed in Indonesia after 11 months or 10 months or 6 months or 18 months and there was a family in Nauru processed in a similar time frame, then they would be able to receive a visa in exactly the same sort of time frame. You don't need to spend five years there for that principle to be effective because the disincentive in the end is that the person will may have got the same outcome or roughly the same outcome, but they would have spent 20000 to $40,000 of money they didn't have on a people smuggler and risked their lives doing so. So the principle is not about punishing. It's not about making it worse in Nauru or worse in Malaysia or worse, wherever the regional arrangements occur. It's about equalising them for everyone and, in fact, not punishing them. There should be no advantage obtained by using a smuggler, but no disadvantage to you once you've been put into a regional processing arrangement. The government and others have forgotten about that. Actually, I'm not sure they quite understood it. I have to say, too, the claims by some commentators that it's going to take 65 years to process people in Nauru using the no advantage principle are rubbish. They also make me want to throw things at TVs. I'm so glad the price of TVs have come down so much. 80% um, of the world's refugees live on the borders of their own countries. 20% move on. Of that 20%, most choose to go to Europe. Others then move towards Australia. It is, a, it is completely dishonest to conflate the global figures of refugees and use that as the benchmark for processing timeframes in an arrangement like this. So I think it comes back to the question about honesty in these processes. Now, I know I'm running out of time here. I'm going to cut to the chase. These are the sorts of complex issues that we, need to that we needed to take on board. People smuggling arrangements offshore that we don't know about are highly sophisticated now. When we met with the AFP and others, they were basically saying there's little more they can do to have an effect on, that, on those arrangements. Um, when the government introduced bridging visas for people to release them from, from detention re recently and but removed work rights, which was not a panel recommendation, had nothing to do with the no-advantage principle... Um, 
and we were all terribly concerned and outraged that people would be receiving 89% of the special benefit payment. The way that was marketed in Indonesia was, look, they're even going to give you a special payment now, so it's going to be okay, you should just go. For many people who are unsuspecting and don't know how, how difficult it is to live on that, that sounded like a very good thing. And so we need to change the conditions for people to seek protection in. We need to increase the numbers. We need to speed up the time frames, and we need to do it and make it safely for people. I just want to give you some other stats. Just before the report was released, a boat carrying 60 people disappeared and has not been heard of since. Two months ago, a boat carrying 150 people sank with more than 120 people drowning. An 11-year-old boy watched his father, his brother, his uncle and others perish. One person pulled aboard the boat from that, that sinking, aboard the rescue vessel, died of blood loss after a shark had taken one of his arms. On October 27, a boat carrying 34 people sank, killing all but one, and had it not been due to the sheer luck of a passing fishing boat, he would have died also, and we would never have known about that boat. A few weeks ago, a boat carrying about 130 Rohingya who were heading to Australia lost 98 people progressively as they died due to exposure and dehydration. Just over a week ago, a boat carrying 60 people broke up and capsized and it was only pure luck that a surveillance plane came across them and spotted people hanging to the hull of the boat. Even luckier was that there was, a, there was an Australian naval vessel within an hour's reach and all of them were thankfully saved. Just before Christmas, four boats went missing after having departed Sri Lanka and they haven't been heard of since. Now, we don't know whether they sank. We don't know whether they all turned back or some of them turned back. But these are things that are happening every single day. This reality demands Australia and all of us to do more. The current state of play where the deficit in trust creates inaction and inertia where all groups, be they political parties within the parliament or within the sector, dig further into their trenches and where adversarialism takes the place of cooperative action, will not prevent it will only prevent progress and it will allow things to become worse. The panel report was a long way from being perfect. There is no such thing as perfection in this area. It was an exercise in dealing with the good, the bad, the ugly and, yes, the wicked. However, it did offer a template to build on and improve. It provided a greater balance in terms of practicality and fairness and we hoped would not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Unfortunately, it's been almost impossible for this hope to be sustained. As a consequence, in my view, I believe we will now lose the 20,000 places. They will go back to 13,750, let alone an increase to 27,000 places. We will lose the 4,000 family reunion places and we will lose the $70 million per annum needed to build capacity and increase the protection space in our region. And if I'm right, I suspect we'll never see them again 
or at least not in my professional lifetime. To me, that's an extraordinary tragedy. It will be a failure on all of our parts to come together to find a better way to take the risks together and to make and create a new regional system that grows human rights, that grows the human rights environment and, uh, and finds ways to protect more and more people. You, in your profession, play an important part in this. The Salvation Army is currently working in Nauru and Manus, employs quite a few social workers. My organisation does, groups like Hotham Mission does, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre does, Centre Care does, Catholic Care does, Anglicare does. All of these people now working in this space engage social workers to do this work. The bit that is so commonly absent from policy consideration is what the human experience is. The bit that's absent is the ability, as I said earlier, to fuse that knowledge and that experience with what's needed to create a better and fairer system. We'll never fix it for everybody. We don't have the capacity on our own. That requires a bigger international effort. But we could do a hell of a lot more than we are at the moment. I hope that doesn't leave it on too bleak a note, but it is pressing for me. I think we are going to see more and more people dying. I think we will probably find people on the route get processed much more quickly than anyone has ever imagined. And with the support of Save the Children, who are working in Manus and Nauru and, and the Salvos, and legal representatives that are now representing people properly, I suspect we can probably do that in a way that was absolutely nothing like it happened under the previous Pacific Solution. And if we, were, and if we can find a way to do that and build that space then we might just find a way to improve protection and human rights right across our region in ways that we hadn't imagined were possible before. So I would implore you to think about it, study it, do placements in organisations if, you if you're a student or if you're a professional working organisations in this area and come to grips with all of the information that needs to be taken into account. Anyway, thanks very much. Can I thank you very much for that illuminating, evidence-based uh, and provocative uh, discussion. I found it incredibly moving, and I'm sure uh, people here found it incredibly moving. You illustrated for us the humane elements, the tricky issues of such a, a wicked social policy issue and the complexities of the response to it. And there were some clues also in your uh, talk about how we might, as a profession, respond to the issue, uh, not just in terms of uh, immediate service delivery, but in terms of lobbying and in terms of being absolutely outraged at some of the issues that you have presented to us. Thank you so much. Okay, I would just 
before we go and have a discussion and a chat and a dialogue and a mix together, uh, I would like to uh, thank Professor Margaret Gardner, the Vice-Chancellor, for supporting us and her endorsement today uh, of what we're doing in social work. Thank you for coming. I would like to thank the Dean of our faculty, who's very modestly stayed very quiet, but is continually supportive of uh, what we're doing in social work. Thank you, David Hayward and the staff group themselves who made such a nice occasion and an important occasion for us in commemorating 40 years of social work at RMIT. We are going to invite you now to join us in a reception, but before we do that, I would just like to draw your attention to our other activities that we are celebrating um, our 40th year. We've got a mid-year discussion and debate uh, planned on critical issues uh, that we are outraged about, including the issue that you have just uh, heard presented to you there, and we invite you uh, to come and engage with us in that discussion. And then, uh, again, we're going to invite you to a celebratory party at the end of the year when we can showcase some of the students' uh, contributions to what we do. We're very interested to hear from you what you think, how we can engage with you, and if you look inside your leaflet, you'll see at the bottom there's an opportunity to have your say, and we invite you to give us some feedback and engage with some of the issues we've presented tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, let's go and enjoy ourselves. <laughs>